there. Welcome to Shoot the Flick. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple who like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do. That we do. And this week, Scott has decided to show me a movie. Now, uh, I know what you're thinking out there. If you read the title, you're like, oh, wait, Scott showed Frankie this movie? What? (laughs) A musical? (laughs) I know. I understand. But Scott, why don't you tell us what we're watching today, and uh, then you can introduce our very special guest. Well, this week, we dive into an adaptation. We cover The Wiz, and... We couldn't do it alone, of course, because this movie is a bit, what would you say? Uh, Cult-worthy? Cult-worthy, that sounds right. So we got one of our great friends, a man who is becoming famous in the podcasting world with three separate podcasts now, Antonio! Hello, everyone. So, Antonio, why don't you give us a quick intro into your whole bag and everything you do, because you do a lot and uh, you do it so well, we just want everyone to know about it. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on to talk about this film. But before we get into that, yes, uh, the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast is my main show. I've been running that for about two years. You've been the guest on that on a very popular episode, which I feel is the reason why we're doing this show tonight. I made you sit through Xanadu versus the Apple, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I also do the Cultworthy Classic, which you've been on as well. And that talks about movies made before 1970 that deserve more love and affection. And then I have a third podcast called The Milf and Me, which is kind of like a comedy relationship podcast with my friend Diana, where she tells me dating stories and I pretty much talk shit on her. And it's a good time. So, yeah. Those are my three shows. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the MILF and me is a lot of fun. You and your co-host have great chemistry. Well, I mean, her life makes it very easy for me to crack jokes on because every week it's something different. <laughs> yes, yes. A man that wears many hats, Antonio is. Uh, but like he said, on his show more recently, we watched two very interesting cult-worthy musicals. Uh, Xanadu and the Apple, and they were both uh, very unique <laughs> in their own special ways. Um, <laughs> but because we watched those two musicals, we kind of wanted to have him back on our show so we could make him watch a very cult-worthy, interesting musical. Revenge. Yeah, so I watched this movie for the first time a couple of years ago, and I thought it was fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it was fine. I'm surprised you actually watched a musical without my prompting. Yeah, I know, exactly. Frankie was looking through my letterbox at my movies. She's like, you've seen The Wiz? I'm putting it on the list. I've never seen it. I want to watch it. <laughs> and now here we are. I have never seen this film all the way through in my entire life. I've probably started it at least 10 times. It's just one of those movies where... After about 20, 30 minutes, I really don't want to watch this. And to even go further into it, this viewing, which is the first time I've viewed this full in its entirety, I think I watched it in 20-minute blocks. I just couldn't sit and watch it all in one sitting. I literally had to take a break, go make dinner, record another podcast, watch 20 more minutes, (laughs) So it literally took me like four days to finish this movie. 
I get it though. Like, first of all, this movie's too long. <laughs> when I looked it up on Amazon Prime, which is where we watched it, I was like, oh my god, it's over two hours? Okay, fuck. But then I'm like, oh, I guess that makes sense because, you know, musical. No, it doesn't make sense. It's two hours and 14 minutes. This is one and three quarters Xanadu, right? You're watching Xanadu one and three quarters the way through to watch this film. And I would much rather watch one and three quarters worth of Xanadu than this. And I'll also say the beginning of this movie is super slow. Like all the stuff before they go to Oz is just really boring. And there's two songs in like the very beginning. And I said to Scott, like when those two songs were going on, I'm like, oh, was that it? Like the songs seem incomplete. Like they just gave up writing them halfway through and that they just put them on screen like, oh, okay. So I, I was a bit scared in the first 20 minutes or so oh, of this yeah. movie. My first note is, this song is too slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of the songs seem like really bland. <laughs> I would say maybe like two and a half songs I remember and enjoyed. The rest are just pretty slow and like whatever. It's so funny because the things I remember from my first viewing of this film are, <laughs> of course, ease on down the road. And the fact that Nipsey Russell technically has more solo songs than Michael Jackson. I don't think that's accurate. No, 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 no. no. I think we established no, that wasn't no, accurate. No, 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 no. That is accurate. He sings two songs by himself, and Michael Jackson sings one. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, this was also before Michael Jackson was like Thriller, Beat It, Billie Jean, Michael Jackson. This was like five years before that, so. Still. I, I get you. But I will say, I think overall, I liked it. I don't know if I would watch it again, <laughs> but it, it's definitely got problems. That's that's what I'll say overall. It's okay, but it's got plenty of problems. Well, it's a, it's a mixed bag of a movie, and some of the mixings work, and a lot don't. Let's just talk really fast about just the the people behind it. There are so many big names behind this movie that I didn't even know about oh my God, until yeah. after I watched it and looked at the credits. So first of all, written by Joel Schumacher of Batman Forever and Batman and Robin fame of, and some other films that are good. But we're yes, talk about Lost those. Boys, which we also talked about on the show. But it feels more like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. That's why I mentioned those two. Directed by Sidney Lumet. Like there are so many names behind this movie that I really didn't know about. Yeah, when I was doing research and Sidney Lumet came up, I was like, what? You mean the guy that did 12 Angry Men? Really? Okay. Serpico? Okay. <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon? Okay, interesting. This is his first and only musical. Can't imagine why. Uh, it didn't do too well, obviously. It was a critical and commercial failure despite the fact that the Broadway musical that it was based on came out in 1975, was a big hit, won seven Tonys, including Best Musical. Obviously, big deal because it was a big budget production with an all-black cast. Uh, however, the movie was also a pretty big budget production, didn't make the budget back at all, and it just completely flopped. But I think a lot of people blame Diana Ross for that. I I'm not I'm not sure if that's really fair. Oh, I think it's kind of fair. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's completely fair. 
Well, I think you have to look at it this way. This movie feels very jumbled. Like, yeah. It's all over the place. Like, there's a whole sequence with the poppies. Oh, oh. God. Yeah, that was so confusing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I didn't even realize that it was the scene that had anything to do with the poppies until, like, Frankie pointed it out to me. And then I was like, oh. Yeah, to be fair, though, that's similar to the original movie where, like, the poppy scene kind of just happens and they pass out. And then within five minutes, they're up again, like, la di da da So uh, that's not too different from the original movie. But from what I understand, they made a big stink that The Wiz was based on The Wizard of Oz books and not the movie, which is why in this film... Dorothy's slippers are silver because in the books they're silver but for the original Wizard of Oz movie they changed it to red because it just looked better on camera and I also I feel like I hate the Wicked Witch more in this movie than in the original because she almost threw Toto into a fucking fire but you know we'll get there (laughs) going back to what Scott was saying how this movie feels jumbled it's two hours and 14 minutes long Yet it feels like so much is missing from it. It, it, To me, this feels like this was supposed to be a three-hour movie, and they just made a lot of cuts all through the film just to make it feel like a sequential story. We don't see the Wicked Witch of the West until the last, what, 25 minutes of the movie? Yeah, we were wondering where she was. (laughs) Right! We don't see her. We don't even really hear about her until later on in the film. So there isn't that villainous, ominous presence that makes the original Wizard of Oz so exciting, where the witch is pretty much every other scene figuring out how she's going to get Dorothy and her crew. This, we really just have to watch Dorothy and her crew stumble through this dystopian Harlem, New Jersey-looking... Oz, which, I, don't get me wrong, it's kind of cool, but also, it really feels like the Warriors. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm ready for the baseball furies and the Lizzies to pop out and start chasing Dorothy and the Tin Man, <laughs> you know? I did enjoy, as a New Yorker, the New York iconography and aesthetic. However, similarly to the Warriors, I did get that vibe. The whole movie, it, it looks so dark and grungy. Like, even when they first get to Oz, it's so dark. I was actually kind of surprised. I'm like, this movie was nominated for cinematography? Why is it so dark? I don't, I can't see anything. (laughs) And, like, I get it. Like, a lot of 70s movies had that grunge to them where, like I said in the Warriors review, it kind of looks like the movie smells like cigarettes. (laughs) Like, I got it. That's fine. But you're in Oz. Like, lighten up a little bit. Right. Oz is, in the book and in the original film, supposed to be fantastical and magical. And even though it's scary for Dorothy and she wants to go home, the whole point is that it is a world of whimsy and fantasy where this is, like I said, it's it's Mad Max. It's dystopian. Everything is is dirty and grungy. And there's some deeper messages to that. You know, uh, Joel Schumacher was writing this script from the aspect of a black exploitation film. He really was. You know, he had done Car Wash before that, and he had worked for AIP, who was doing a bunch of black exploitation films before that. So it does kind of have that kind of dirty, grimy feel to it. It's not a place you want to stay, but it's a place you want to escape. Yeah, this definitely did come out at the end of 
the black exploitation era of film, which I guess makes sense as to why it didn't really do well commercially. Yeah, it's weird for a movie that has gone this cult following. There are only like two or three songs that are actually memorable. Like you have Diana Ross in this, who is known for her big voice, and she's like meek and forgettable. Yeah, she's she's very meek pretty much throughout the entire movie. Most of her songs are very mousy until like the very last one, which she kills. But yeah, I mean, most of her songs before that are very mousy like this. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get it. I'm like, what is she doing? <laughs> oh, it's also one of those situations where the supporting cast outshines the lead. And that's always, to me... Uh, almost a death nail in any movie where if your lead is the weakest link, you can't rely on your supporting cast to save the movie because you just want more of them, you know? And from the second Michael Jackson pops up, he's great. His character is great. His performance is great. We didn't get to see a lot of that kind of Michael Jackson on film, except in his little short film music videos, like thriller and, and beat it. You know, he gets to act in this and, I really feel that that Scarecrow character, the way it was written, feels like Michael Jackson, someone who doesn't really have any will or say of his own life. He's pretty much doing what everyone else is telling him to do. That's, you know, a mirror of his life in real life. Very yeah. childlike, I would say. And, and the fact that any knowledge that he has, which I thought was a genius move, comes from the little bits of newspaper that are strewn about inside of his body and garbage. So he waxes poetic and philosophical, but they're all these little, you know, dear Abby lines or fortune cookie fortunes. And I thought that was really cool. I thought that was very clever. They, they do things here and there and I'm like, Oh, that's cute. Uh, you know, I guess I don't hate it. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we can get more into the nitty gritty now and we can kind of dissect everyone as we meet them. So are we ready to get into the nitty and the gritty? Yay! If we have to. <laughs> so we dive into The Wiz and we meet Diana Ross as Dorothy and her family. As far as Diana Ross goes... This movie came out right after the Supremes broke up, so I guess it kind of makes sense that like she wanted to get out there and do something new, which you can commend that, I suppose. But when she was vying for the role of Dorothy, the studio was like, oh, no, 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 you're too old. <laughs> I, I think they actually wanted the girl, I think she was a teenager at the time, who originally played Dorothy in the Broadway show. But Diana Ross, who obviously, you know, she was a bigger name, and, you know, she was like, hey, you know, the role of Dorothy is timeless. It could be any age. Mm, not, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think she kind of pushed it over the line when she said, hey, if you cast me, I'll bring Michael Jackson. And the studio was like, oh, well, we can't really pass that up. So yeah. fine, I guess. And that was that. <laughs> yeah, she almost kind of blackmailed her way into that role because they were trying to find a studio that would produce it. And she was able to get Rob Cohen, a guy that we didn't mention yet, who went on to direct Dragon, the Bruce Lee story in The Fast and the Furious. He was a producer at Universal at the time. She convinced him that if she got the part of Dorothy and he produced the film, she could bring along Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. And that was kind of like the deal maker. So yeah, 
she kind of strong armed her way into that role. Hey man, <laughs> take what you can get. <laughs> yeah, but when it comes to the music, there were a couple of new songs, I think, to tailor Dorothy's motivations as an older woman. But most of the songs were from the original show and they were written by Charlie Smalls, who did win a Tony and a Grammy Award for the Broadway production. So give him props for that. Uh, despite the fact that a lot of these songs were a little bland, but it's okay. We have Quincy Jones in there to help out a little, maybe. Uh, I'm sure that did something. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never actually heard the original Broadway album, yeah, so I can only speculate. So Dorothy is a mousy 24-year-old girl. They say she was 24? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because you know what? At one point, her aunt is like, you are 24 years old. It's time you get married and pop out some babies. And I'm like, oh, shit, she's 24? <laughs> <laughs> that biological clock is ticking, girl. Well, I hear you all age a lot faster on the East Coast, like the water or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that smog. It ages you very quickly. <laughs> the smog and the snow. <laughs> Oh, God, let's not talk about the snow in this movie. There's a fucking snow NATO in this movie that made me fucking laugh hysterically. <laughs> Can we just for a second talk about how Aunt M is played by Teresa Merritt? Oh, my God. Probably yes, most commonly you. known as Juanita from Billy Madison. Thank you. I said that to him and he's like, who? I thought I was your snack pack. <laughs> Apparently it's been a while since I've seen Billy Madison. It's been too long, Scott. It probably has been. Let's go watch it right now. Let's stop talking about this and just go watch that. <laughs> but yeah, Diana Ross, her aunt says, you need to get out of teaching kindergarten and go teach high school who where kids are closer to your age. Yeah, that speech was weird. It sounded like it she was, was trying to hook Dorothy up with like high school kids. I was like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> That's not normal. I want to see that movie. Like her class is the oh Warriors, you know? Oh <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised the Warriors wasn't a musical now that I think about it. They were dressed so very flashy for grungy New York City street urchins. I'm surprised the Warriors wasn't an animated series, like a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. But back in Dorothy's New York, there's a snowstorm going on. A snow-nado! A snow-nado, Scott. A snow-nado. And our little dog, Toto, who likes to disappear randomly throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. When uh, musical numbers happen, the dog magically disappears <laughs> so we can, you know, do the musical number. Toto runs outside. Dorothy follows. Uh, and they both get swept up in the snow-nado. And then it turns into the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> oh my God, stop. The goddamn little space babies freaked me the fuck out. And like, <laughs> listen, I get it. It's the 70s, man. Like, but literally it reminded me of that part in the Star Wars holiday special where Chewie just like walked into the light. Yes. And I'm just sitting there like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? This is crazy. And it's weird too, because there's that shot where they show her like slingshot through the moon. And she's flying feet first and her skirt's blowing up. I'm like, why would they just not turn her around and fly her head first? And they green screened her over this like swirling. It's it's a mess. I'm like, what are they doing to you? What are they doing to you, Diana? And then just having those space babies, literal babies 
suspended from wires, just kind of hanging there like a Christmas ornament in the background. It really weirded me out. I didn't get it at all. And then we got to Oz and we meet all the quote unquote munchkins, which present as like graffiti on the wall. And when they come out of the wall, they sound and look like putties from fucking Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> and I just talking gibberish at first before they started obviously singing because, you know, musical. And I was just very confused. <laughs> My other question about the Munchkins is that some of them walk really wonky and then others just seem to like give up on that almost like immediately. You can like tell the progression of the shoot. It's like, okay, that was obviously hour 12 of a 16 hour day. And the munchkin's are like, fuck it. <laughs> and then some lady comes out called Miss One, which I didn't understand the purpose of her at all. And of course, then they start to sing a song, which is akin to the Yellow Brick Road song from the original film. Like, you must follow the Yellow Brick Road to find the whiz and then you can go home. And I was confused as to who that lady was. But I was at least comforted by the fact that, like, the song which I believe was just called He's a Wizard, um, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, let's be as straightforward as possible. It, it did make me feel a little better because I'm like, oh, this at least sounds like a song from a musical. Yeah, it was nice to get a little upbeat song, but isn't it weird that this is now the second movie that we've talked about where people jump out of a fucking mural on the wall? Like, that's oh, how yeah, Xanadu starts. Xanadu. Oh, God. Yeah, and then we watch <laughs> this and they're just jumping right out of the wall. It's like, oh, okay, there's a theme going on. And all while this is going on, Michael Beck is behind the wall somewhere talking to Zeus. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, but I love Olivia Newton-John so much. We roller skate together and we vibe. <laughs> oh, God. So the song ends. Dorothy walks up to a taxi that drives away from her. Yeah, I didn't understand the point of the taxis in this. Those taxis make no goddamn sense at all. Yeah. I think it's meant to be a commentary on racism. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, that didn't even occur to me. You're right. That makes sense. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. That's how I took it, oh, but shit, I didn't really? want it to be true. But then when I read the Joel Schumacher commentary on how he was writing that script, I'm like, okay, that does make a lot more sense. He is kind of making his social message. So Dorothy decides she's just going to walk and uh, try to find the yellow brick road. As you do. And she quickly runs into Michael Jackson and a bunch of crows. It's the Dumbo crows, you guys. It is a Dumbo crows, but in live action. <laughs> I forgot how scary they look. They look downright horrifying. Yeah, they look pretty creepy. But Michael Jackson's fun. <laughs> you know what? Here's what I love about Michael Jackson's character. The fact that he's made entirely out of garbage it wasn't until almost the end of the movie that I realized that his nose was a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper. Oh, I know. They kept doing close-ups of him. And I'm like, is that a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper? It took me the whole movie. <laughs> and then I looked it up and I'm like, holy shit, it is. What the fuck? That's <laughs> so funny. All that prosthetic shit he had to wear, though. I mean, like, it, pretty much all of them had to wear prosthetic shit, except Dorothy, of course. But Did you read more about that? He hated the makeup process so much because it took four hours that he would literally spend three or four days in that makeup. He'd go to bed in it and then come to set the next morning still in the makeup because he was claustrophobic of sitting in the chair. Oh, yeah, but Michael sings the crow song. You can't win. I think it was cut from 
the Broadway show. It was supposed to be somewhere else in there, but they took it out and then brought it back for this moment in the movie, which is good. I mean, I don't remember any of the lyrics. Like, don't ask me any of the lyrics of the song, but it's Michael Jackson. and he, he did a good job. Yeah, but, like, he doesn't get to dance. No, because he was on the freaking pole. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. You know, it's a fun song. It's way too long, but I wanted to see some Michael Jackson dance moves. Yeah, that's the thing, too. I feel like because he's a scarecrow and part of the scarecrow character is like, ooh, clumsy. He didn't really get to be coordinated at all. Yeah, Ray Bolger in Wizard of Oz does a huge dance routine to sing his song about not having a brain and they leave Michael Jackson on a pole? Yeah, after this, Dorothy comes, chases away the crows, pulls Michael off the pole. Feels weird to say that. (laughs) (laughs) The stripper pole, Scotty. And then we get the biggest song of the movie. Yes, ease on down the road. Best song of the movie. Which is both fortunate and unfortunate because they do reprises of this. But then after that, you're like, oh, no, it's stuck in my head. Wait, can you sing it again? I would have been perfectly content if every song in the movie was Ease On Down the Road. <laughs> same just change just change the lyrics and the context but just leave the the tune the same it was i think the only song that was released as a single and it charted 41 on the pop charts and then it got higher on the soul charts i think it was like 17 so it's still a pretty popular song it's the only song i knew before going into this movie same so yes we find the yellow brick road we follow it Straight to Coney Island. Yay! What a dump. <laughs> oh, no. But then we meet Nipsey Russell. And, uh, As a Tin Man. I, I love him. I know him from the match game. He's hilarious. Exactly. <laughs> Nipsey's great. He's fun. He gets two songs back to back. I think he did good, though. I was fine with it. I love the little song and dance. I love the little vaudeville throwback. He's like a carnival barker. The Tin Man, I think, was the most original recreation of, of a character that we're all familiar with. And to have the talent behind it, like the, Nipsey Russell is such a magnetic performer that it's, it's kind of tough when other characters come into the frame. And, and this is something we'll probably get to in a minute. There is a point in this movie where I feel it's Nipsey Russell versus Ted Ross as the lion mugging for the camera and they just kind of wash out michael and diana ross because you know michael's still not he's a great performer but you can tell that he is a little uneasy being on film like you can see that he's a little insecure with that diana ross is just a washout those two really mug for the camera and it's fun but it is also kind of distracting at the same time i definitely see what you're saying you can definitely see that Michael kind of does fade into the background a little, probably because he's not an actor. Well, yeah, this this was his first movie. He's not an actor. Diana Ross isn't an actor. They're primarily singers. 
Diana had acted before, though. She mm-hmm. played Billie Holiday like five years before this. And I think she got an Oscar nom for that. Yeah, Lady Sings the Blues. Yeah. So she has acted before. But I, I think if you look at, and I don't know, technically, maybe you shouldn't compare, but it's hard not to compare her with Judy Garland in the original. If you think about it, Dorothy in that original movie didn't really have much of a personality either. But Judy Garland just had a really big camera presence and better songs, obviously, I would say. So it it helped her a lot. I, I, I think Diana probably had a lot going against her in this movie, not just as a performer or like because of her age. I just think every aspect of this Dorothy was working against Diana Ross. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing about this movie that always kind of weirded me out is you have such a powerful big-name director behind it. There's clearly money behind it. And then you look at some of the shot compositions and you're like... Oh, my God. That's why I was like, cinematography? Like, some of the shots are just really wonky and weird. Like, there's one where Diana Ross is next to a brick wall where she you could show her shadow on the wall as she's singing... But it's not angled right, and it just looks awkward. And I'm like, why is this shot like this? Yeah, there are other shots that were blocked very weirdly. Like, there's one shot where it's the four of them, Dorothy, Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion. They're all together, and they're, you know, following that yellow brick road. And it's supposed to be a joke about how filthy New York City is. I like uh, I get it yeah but like it's just them dancing behind a wall of garbage you can't even see them at all you're like okay this is supposed to be funny like I get what you're trying to do but we'd also like to see our main characters like I don't you can make a joke about garbage in New York City but also show off your actors choreography like you can do those two things at the same time yeah, and I guess my devil's advocate response to that is like Sidney Lumet is really known for his character dramas, does a lot of his film work in either medium shots or close-ups. And if he does a master establishing shot, it's really just to set where the scene takes place. Here, I'm sure he relied a lot on, let's say, first or second assistant directors and second unit people to really handle the hundreds literal hundreds of dancers and extras in these scenes so by the time he wants to shoot his more intimate moments the footage doesn't line up i will say i vastly preferred the more intimate moments and we'll get to it when we get towards the end but i feel like once we got to maybe the last 20 30 ish minutes of the movie i liked it a lot more because it was just more intimate oh indeed Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I I would agree with you completely there. Uh, I want to say one more thing about the Tin Man before we move on. And I I might be on an island by myself here, but did you guys feel like any weird, (laughs) almost sexual tension between the Tin Man and Dorothy? (laughs) I don't know. Okay, it's very vague and slight, perhaps. But like when she was working him out with like the oil and moving him around and she's like, how do you feel? I'm like, ooh, okay. (laughs) And then I looked it up and Nipsey Russell's like 25 years older than she is. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just reading into it too much. (laughs) I don't know. That's very possible. But I I just felt like a weird sexual tension between them throughout the movie at little points here and there. I think you're on an island, but 
at the same time, there is some dialogue that is in there. I don't remember the lines exactly. That kind of just set the tone of how lovelorn he is. You know, like he wants to have a heart so he can fall in love and so he can be in a relationship with somebody. And I think they play that angle a little bit more in this than they do in the original. Yeah, definitely. Maybe maybe that's what it was. <sighs> so. <laughs> oh, my God, the sigh. <laughs> <sighs> kind of how I feel when I talk about this movie. We're only introduced to the Scarecrow in the 10 minutes. Still feels like we have so much more to go through. Oh, you poor baby. So finally, we get to the New York Public Library. Yes, which made me happy. I was like, oh, I know what this is. I know what's about to happen. Okay, got it. Cool. The lion, like, pops out of one of the stone lions at the public library. Ah. I see what you did there. <laughs> uh-huh. And the lion uh, in this movie is played by Ted Ross who basically looks like he just popped straight out of cats <laughs> in his little outfit, which we love. But does he have a butthole, Frankie? We don't need to know that. <laughs> we can live a long, happy life without knowing either way. Um, but Ted Ross was the original lion in the Broadway show. He comes off very much like a Broadway guy. And it works for this because the lion is super over the top yes like i said scenery chewing mugging for the camera but also let's not skip over the fact that the lion's name is fleetwood coop deville oh my god i was like what the fuck is that i want to name my next child that that is the coolest goddamn name i've ever heard in my life especially the way he says it a fleetwood coop deville it's so good uh, he sings Mean Old Lion, which is a catchy little song. Yeah, when I said I liked two and a half of the songs in this movie, that's like the half song. Because I don't remember any of the lyrics, but I just remember like the vibe of it. And I remember it being really fun. <laughs> Say what you wanna, but I'm here to stay because I'm a mean old You're not wrong, Frankie, about saying it straight out of Cats. That's essentially the Rum Tum Tugger song from Cats. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's dressed like Rum Tum Tugger, pretty much. <laughs> he really is. He really is. <laughs> Though it's funny. At one point, he does say his kingdom used to be uh, in front of a waterfall. Can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> well, Frankie started singing that, and I said, this is what happens. They paved paradise and, and put, put up, up a parking, parking lot. lot. <laughs> uh, it was so brilliant. Jeez Louise. Um, anyway, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> we then, of course, get Toto, who nips at the lion's paw because Toto is a boss and gives no fucks. And then the lion just erupts in tears because he is a little pussy. Ha ha. Do you get it? Yeah. Do you get it? I said he's a pussy because he's a lion and lions are cats. (laughs) Do you get it? Yes, we get it. Can you put a little drum riff and a a cymbal crash right there? (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I edit this, so I'm definitely going to do that. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, oh my god again with the sigh 
So the cowardly lion joins the crew. Oh, wait, wait. Before we move on, this is... Okay, this is another, like, little clever thing. This is why I don't... I don't hate this movie. I like this movie. It does little clever things. I'm like, oh, okay. I see you. I see you, the whiz. So when they're fighting with the lion, there's a street sign. You know, like the don't walk, walk sign. And it says, don't ease. And then when they're all friends and they're like going off down on their little adventure, it changes to green and it says ease. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I chuckled. That was fucking funny. I'll admit it. (laughs) (laughs) I I will begrudgingly admit that was fun. Fine, whatever. (laughs) So our crew now goes down into the subway. This is hilarious to me. Again, as someone who lived in New York for my whole life, and has been on the subway like many times. The fact that the second we go into the subway, it turns into a fucking shit show. I'm like, okay, I, I see what you're trying to do here. You're like, that tracks. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Get it? I want a drum and cymbal crash on that one too. But I'm bummed. The fucking street vendor guy that comes yeah. down with the creepy little puppet things. That was creepy as fuck. And then that was really creepy they slowly grow and grow like the stay puffed marshmallow man and just start chasing them around it was ooh, i didn't i didn't like it there's that there's the pillars that come alive garbage cans comes to eat michael jackson's arms uh, yeah that was less creepy that <laughs> that was just silly if you don't know the wizard of oz tale and you just come in blindly to this movie why would you watch this movie if you didn't know anything about the wizard of oz <laughs> It just seems like an odd choice if this is your introduction to that world. But okay, never mind. Continue. Well, let's just say you did that. Okay, fine. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Would you know why this is happening? No. But to be fair, I know a lot about The Wizard of Oz, and I don't really know why this is happening. (laughs) Actually, I thought you said that guy was one of the flying monkeys. I thought he was. But yeah, but we see them later. So I'm like, okay, who is this fucking guy? Is he just some random creepy guy in the subway? Like, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, it tracks, so it's fine. But like... (laughs) Okay, so they escape. The lion is brave and he saves his friends and then they get out of the subway and immediately get drugged. (laughs) And then they sing a bland song and then they get away after being drugged. It's just so like I'm, I'm saying that and you think I'm joking around or being like glib, but it's just it's literally that's how much it matters to the fucking story. (laughs) And then the lion almost commits suicide. Yeah, he almost jumps off the roof. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, the lion, like, blames himself for him and Dorothy getting drugged for, like, five minutes. So he just wants to jump off the fucking roof. (laughs) Even though he and Dorothy are totally fine now. They're fully conscious. It's just, like, a minor inconvenience getting roofied by some poppy people. And I also just don't understand the purpose of it because literally nothing happened to them. They weren't trapped. Like, what was the purpose of drugging them? I I don't get it. (laughs) That is where the lack of the Wicked Witch character really comes into play because that is the whole reason why they get drugged in the original story. She drugs them so they don't make it to the Emerald City. But since we don't get no goddamn Wicked Witch in the first or second act, you're right. It makes no sense. That's... 
20 minutes we could have shaved off this two hour and 14 minute runtime. Yeah, 20 minutes and a bland song. <laughs> guys, guys, if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have Nipsey Russell dumping his liquids. Oh my God, stop. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I was just waiting for the word liquids to come out of your mouth and I just, I wasn't about it. No, no. <laughs> Oh god. All right. Can we can we just like go to the Emerald City now? <laughs> Please. I never thought I'd say this, but can we go to the World Trade Center now? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like nothing bad has ever happened there. Can we just please get out of here? Oh god. So we cross this bridge and we get to the Emerald City. Oh yeah, I thought of you again here, Antonio, because the whole sequence of them here in the Emerald City with all the people dancing around, it reminded me of the Apple <laughs> when they're doing that dance scene in the fucking record company, like dancing around crazily in the what, BIM or whatever it is. It was very 70s and very flashy. <laughs> yeah, very disco-y, you know, the color changes and it just seemed very ugh, kind of oppressive, but it's supposed to be fun. That's the craziest part about this movie is that you think you're supposed to be having fun with it, but it's like the kind of fun that you're being told to have at the barrel of a gun. You know? <laughs> oh my God, that's too funny. Have fun, <laughs> goddammit, or I'm going to blow your fucking head off. That's what this movie feels like to me. Why is there just a microphone walking around? <laughs> Two legs! Who is this mic person? Oh my God, yeah, that was fucking weird. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Scott. I can't answer all these questions for you. I am not the great whiz. <laughs> so our little foursome go in and meet the whiz, right? And it's Richard Pryor, but you don't see Richard Pryor really until later. Right now, you just see a big, silver, scary-looking head that kind of looks like Richard Pryor. <laughs> and <laughs> like in the original movie, our little foursome is just scared shitless. Dorothy's like, oh, please, sir. Please, I just want to go home. <laughs> And like, same girl, we all want to go home. But uh, Richard Pryor goes, okay, listen, I'll, I'll give you guys what you want. I'll give you a brain. I'll give you a heart, courage, blah, blah, blah. You just have to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> Eveline, kill that bitch. <laughs> and after hesitating a bit, Dorothy's like, okay, we really don't have any other choice. So I guess let's do it. Let's kill the witch. And then we finally get the person that's supposed to actually be the villain of the movie. This is exactly where the movie, A, gets better for me, but also really shows to me the, the fuckery that went on in the editing. So right after that moment where he says, go kill the witch, where well, we get to see the witch and she has that great musical number of like, you know, bring me the news. Loved that. Loved her performance. We get to see the fucking crazy flying monkeys and then she sends them off to get the gang Dorothy and the gang this is where things get fucking weird because right after that scene they're like in a fucking tunnel or a hallway or a corridor and we really get no explanation of how they got there so I think there was something that got cut out I mean, to me, they looked like they were in like one of the underground hallways of Madison Square Garden, you know, where the, the basketball teams are like run through to get on the field. It, like, it was just very just plain and dry looking environment. You mean where there's all those guys legs all around? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's a lot of fish. 
Oh God, ew, no, <laughs> Jesus Christ! No, he's great. I could kiss him right now. No one throws out Godzilla '98. <laughs> no one but Scott. <laughs> yep. Literally, I bet you because I have a folder for editing filled with like audio clips that we use a lot, and I could almost guarantee <laughs> that's a lot of fish is in that folder. Yes. If it is, I'll put it here. That's a lot of fish. <laughs> God damn it! But anyway. Eveline finally gets her little hands on everybody and I I feel like something similar to this happened in the original movie but I feel like Dorothy didn't have to watch all of her friends get fucking tortured and her dog almost get thrown into a fucking fire like it just it felt like a lot which I actually like appreciated I appreciated how dark it was but I was like damn I was cool with it. They've got Scarecrow on the rack and they're tearing his shit up. They almost do like that same kind of weird torch they do to that droid in Return of the Jedi where they like steam iron his feet. They're doing that to the Tin Man. Yeah, Scott's like, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're hanging the lion by his tail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, Ow. so brutal. Ow. It turns into a Saw movie pretty fast. <laughs> And I swear to God, when they were going to throw that dog in the fucking fire, I was like, you piece of shit, don't you fucking hurt that dog. You done fucked up now. I'm a dog mom. I can't fucking, I can't fuck with that. When people mess with the dog in a movie, I, I'm like, nope. But yeah, but Michael Jackson somehow gets Dorothy to know this the sprinkler button. So she presses the button, sprinkler shoot off. The evil witch is flushed down the toilet. Which I was totally cool with that. And let me tell you why. Because, you know, the first thought is like, oh, okay, so why would she even have a fire suppression system in the building if she was allergic to water? <laughs> but you know what? I guarantee you that was just a fucking play on why are there buckets of water in the witch's castle in the original that are so easily accessible to throw on the witch who will melt if water hits her. So I, I personally think that was like a little nod to the ridiculousness of the plot structure for that particular scene in the movie. But the day is saved. The Wicked Witch is dead. So we get the Hooray Hurrah song, Brand New Day. I didn't realize this song was from this movie. It, it sounded familiar to me, and I was like, oh, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Do you know why this song's familiar to you? Why? Because they do this song on an episode of Family Guy. <laughs> yes! Because they make fun of it, the fact that everyone strips into their underwear for no reason. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I thought it was because they were in those sweatsuits. Because Eveline runs a quote-unquote sweatshop. So they all wear these really heavy sweatsuits. And then Eveline literally collects their sweat because gross. And <laughs> yeah, they take all their clothes off and dance around in their underwear as you do so yeah it was just a fun song and fun fact i think it was written by luther vandross of all people and there's also some more of that kind of uh social awareness message in that number because the, the a lot of the dancers and the characters are wearing like these thick like you said sweatsuits but a lot of them have masks and gloves that are very reminiscent of like minstrel show representations of african americans you know with the curls and the red lips and stuff so I took it as kind of like a social 
message of this is what the old representation of African-Americans were. And now that the witch is dead, or let's say this suppressive society is dead, they can strip off these stereotypes and be free. That's the way I took it, which I thought was kind of heavy handed, but at the same time, kind of clever. But then I also thought this was also written by a white dude, so maybe it is a little too heavy-handed. Joel Schumacher heavy-handed? What? No. (laughs) I've never heard of Joel Schumacher being over-the-top or heavy-handed ever. Oh, my God. He's like, you see, the nipples on the bat suit represent his femininity, and we have to make sure that we express this. Oh, God, bat nipples. Why would you bring that up, you (laughs) bastard? Oh, my God. Uh, Anyway. So, yes, the Wicked Witch is dead. And then the foursome goes back to the Wiz, who is just a husk of Richard Pryor sitting in the corner, freaking the fuck out. Hiding under his blanket, sucking his thumb on a cot. It's very disturbing. I will say, though, Richard Pryor's performance here is fucking nuts. Yeah. It is so good. I was like, who is this guy? Like... Why did he have more dramatic shit? Like, it blew me away how good it was. Why do we only get seven minutes of it? I know. I was mad about it. And then I was like, wait, what happens to him? Like, I want to know. He eventually goes back to New Jersey. Oh, my God. When he said he was from fucking Atlantic City, I gasped. (laughs) Like, (gasps) Jersey. He's from fucking Jersey. I knew it. (laughs) You bastard. (laughs) What I also love, too, is, like, the first thing Dorothy says to the Wiz, <laughs> she rips off his blanket, and she just yells, phony! <laughs> and it made me think of the fucking Family Guy joke. You're a phony! Hey, everybody! This guy's a great big phony! Oh, yes, the Wiz is a phony. And finally, Dorothy is like, you know what? It doesn't matter. You are smart, Scarecrow. You have a heart, Tin Man and Lion... You're oh so brave. <laughs> you didn't need the feather to fly. You had it in you the whole time, Dumbo. <laughs> and then uh, another song happens. Believe in yourself. And it's so bland. Fucking goddamn it. Oh, and then they're visited by Glinda, the good witch. Played by Lena Horne in, I think, her final film ever, which is unfortunate. And the Space Babies. But yeah, we get that kind of bland song well actually the bland song that dorothy sings is somewhat revived by lena horn because she has a reprise of it that's far superior and then glinda's like just click your heels three times and you can go home it's easy as one two three and dorothy's like wait i could have just clicked my heels this whole time like what the fuck (laughs) but then she goes into the legit power ballad of the movie home which I've heard other performances of, so I knew it was coming, and I knew it was going to be like an actual powerhouse Diana Ross performance. And it didn't disappoint. It actually was really great. I really love the song. I will say also... As we kind of mentioned before, because the camera work was so intimate, and by that point I was just more into the movie, I I actually felt a little emotional when Dorothy was like saying her goodbyes to everybody. 
And then you see like a lonely little tear rolling down Richard Pryor's face. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting emotional. What the fuck? What is this movie? What has it done to me? I didn't get that, but I'm happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know what? Excuse me. Fine. Fuck. Uh, So as Dorothy sings her big power ballad, which... You have Diana Ross, so of course she's going to excel singing this powerful song. Yes, I was like, finally, Diana has arrived. Everybody flies by her, and then finally her aunt and uncle are there. Ooh, trippy 70s shit. And then the movie just ends. It ends in like two seconds flat. Like, she goes back and immediately end credits. And I'm like, okay... Part of me is happy, but another part of me is like, so we're not even going to have like a little wrap up. Like, there's no place like home. No, not. Oh, okay. Okay. Fine. We're in New York. This ain't no Kansas. There ain't no Kansas here. Fine. Bye. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Dorothy. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Frankie, because that's one of the things that really pissed me off about this movie is that we didn't get the setup or the fulfillment or resolution of having characters in the real world that Dorothy lives in be a part of the fantasy of Oz, you know? So we don't get the human representations of the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow. We don't get that, you know, Richard Pryor exists in the real world as some kind of weird... Maybe he's the principal of her school or some shit. I thought he was going to go back with her. There's no wrap-up at the end. It, It is kind of a fade to black thing. Yeah, they introduced a guy in the beginning that the aunt is trying to hook Dorothy up with. And I'm like, why wasn't that Michael Jackson or Richard Pryor? Or Nipsey Russell with their weird (laughs) sexual attention that apparently I only picked up on, but it's fine. Um, But yeah, you could have had it be somebody from Oz. So that's The Wiz. Antonio, what are your final thoughts on this movie? I'd rather watch Xanadu and Apple back-to-back 27 times before watching this movie again. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a very intense thing. There was a moment where I was stuck uh, at a railroad crossing coming home, and those trains usually take like 10 minutes to go by. So I just whipped out my phone, got on Prime, and watched 10 minutes of The Wiz because I'm like, God damn it, I got to etch away this movie bit by bit somehow. So here's 10 minutes I can spare. And the part that I was at was during the bland fucking song where she's singing to the lion about being brave. And I was like, what if I just put my foot on the gas right now and just drove into this fucking train? Like, (laughs) (laughs) What if I just end it all? Then I never have to finish the movie. And I watch bad movies for a fucking living sometimes, and I really haven't felt so aggressive to a film as I have with The Wiz. The fact that you watched Xanadu and The Apple back to back on your show, and you were still like coherent enough to analyze it and be like, oh, well, this is this, and da 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 da, this is the symbol for this. And now you've watched this movie, and you're like, Fuck the whiz. I wanted to get hit by a train <laughs> rather than finish the movie. I hate it. <laughs> like, I, I hate this movie so much. Uh, yeah. But 
the, I hate the movie. I don't hate the people in the movie. Like I thought Nipsey Russell and Ted Ross and Michael Jackson and Richard Pryor are fucking great. And that's what makes me hate the movie even more because it doesn't do these people justice. Like they fucking killed it and they didn't have a movie to really live up to their performances. That's the way I feel. So out of five, where do you fall? One as a movie. I hate this movie. I feel like the performances, particularly pretty much everyone in the main cast, except for Diana Ross, <laughs> um, the performances really elevated the movie for me. A lot of the songs were pretty bland and the runtime, like I said, was too long. But I, I did like the clever little choices here and there that kept me interested. I ended up giving it a three out of five just because I, I did enjoy it overall. It's got a lot of problems, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm sweet on musicals because I... I feel like musicals require a lot more suspension of disbelief because, you know, normally people don't just like burst out into song when they're feeling some kind of way. So I tend to give them maybe a little more leeway, generally speaking. I mean, I'm sweet on musicals, too, when they are good. Give me... <laughs> Well, no, not even when they're good. Like, you know, I, I had shock treatment on my show. I'm having Rockula on my show, too. Like, there are a lot of musicals that I like because they keep it short and sweet and they don't try and overcorrect where they are lacking. That's fair. Definitely makes sense. I technically have it as a two and a half. I'm kind of being generous and rounding up there because... I do think there are some decent performances here. Now, see, if Antonio wasn't here, I'm always able to talk you up with musicals. You are. But this time, I can't because Antonio is poisoning your mind with all his negative thoughts. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think the issues with this movie, even if it had the greatest songs, the whole experience kind of comes off like brand cereal. It's just bland. Nothing special. It's just there and with the talent behind the scenes and on screen you feel like it should be more so actually you know what i'm gonna give it a two all right fine i'll be the only positive fucking force in the room that's fine i don't need you guys <laughs> fuck both of you uh no i'm kidding but yeah i i don't disagree with anything you guys are saying necessarily yeah i think if if you looked at this in a reflective lens compared to other musicals, this musical isn't daring enough. It's not dangerous enough. It's it's this weird blend of where it's trying to be sweet and fun, as I'm sure the Broadway show is, but then you've got all these weird social commentaries that I think Schumacher threw in there, and then Lume just shooting New York and this dystopian version of it that he does. None of those ingredients work together they don't because it's not fun enough but it's also not serious enough and it's also not socially conscious enough it's it's half-assing everything and that's why i hate it again i i don't disagree with anything you guys are saying but i feel like at the end of the movie i i had just a generally positive vibe despite all the problems so i don't want to be like i don't like it it was fine I, i'll probably never watch it again to be honest, but I'll listen to He's On Down the Road a shit ton. Like, that's a great fucking song. 
Now the real question is, Frankie. Oh God. Would you rather watch this or the apple again? Oh fuck. What kind of question is that? Can I just watch Xanadu instead? <laughs> like Xanadu, I didn't have to think at all. It's so simple and dumb and colorful. It's like cotton candy. It just dissolves instantly and then it's gone. <laughs> like I'll just, I don't have to do anything or think about anything. I'll just do that instead. It's so much easier. Good answer. I like that answer. So before we do our outro, uh, Antonio, I just want to thank you again for coming on with us we always enjoy having you here i want to give you a final opportunity to plug all of your awesome podcasts and anything you want to promote before we let you go so yes please go back and listen to the apple versus xanadu on the cult worthy cinema podcast where scott and frankly joined me in a battle of the bad musicals and that was a lot of fun and this was a lot of fun i love talking to you guys about this stuff because even though i hated the movie I, I can't think of anyone else I would have rather spoken about this movie with than you two. So thank you so much for having me on to do this. But really, just go to thecultworthy.com. You'll find links to all my shows and all my guests, including you guys, and all my blogs and reviews and everything that is me. Of course. And we hope to be on your show again, too, because we just love talking about movies with you. Indeed. Um, but next week on shoot the flick it's our father's day episode yes and we're going to have a a very special and paternal guest with us oh we are but until then this has been shoot the flick i'm frankie sparks and i'm scott eisenberg and i'm antonio thank you for having me make sure you check us out on instagram and twitter at shoot the flick and check out all of our episodes on itunes spotify google podcast and iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. And make sure you come back next week for our fun and fatherly, fancy-free movie adventure. Come on now, ease on down, ease on down, ease on down the road.